This is my conversation with Dr. Mark Colston, a retired psychiatrist and former UCLA professor of psychiatry and FBI, who has a subspecialty focus on suicide prevention. And during his 40 plus years practice, none of his patients died from suicide. He is the developer of surgical empathy, an approach that reaches people in the core of their pain and helps break their attachment to destructive mindsets and behaviors. He is the author of nine books translated into 42 languages with his book, Just Listen, becoming the top book on listening in the world and which was recently named as the number four best communication skills book of all time by most recommended books. He recently was honored with the Shine the Light Media Awards by the Los Angeles County Medical Association for bringing attention to teen mental health and suicide. He is an executive producer of the documentary What I Wish My Parents Knew and co-creator and moderator of the documentary Stay Alive, an intimate conversation about suicide prevention. He is also a former FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer and host of the My Wake Up Call podcast. Hi, Mark. I just wanted to like just start right off the bat ask you about how you got into what you were working with. So you worked with the police and the FBI as a negotiator. That's not something that is a regular job. Like you don't like train for it. Well, I, I'm that that's, I'm probably not best known for that because I, I didn't do a lot of that, but I, I was a negotiation trainer. So I wasn't a negotiator, but I trained FBI and police hostage negotiators. But there's a story behind that. And my background is uh, I was trained as a psychiatrist and I was a specialist in suicide prevention. And that's what I am best known for. And I did that for about 30 years and none of my patients died by suicide. But there's a funny story of how I got into the FBI uh, and police training. I was giving a presentation to uh, uh, to parents of of middle school students so these are parents of seventh eighth and ninth graders and the title of the presentation was called keeping your child safe and there was another person giving a presentation uh, who was an fbi agent named brent braun and he went first and and, and he pointed out all, all the things that these parents needed to be focused on but i had a different kind of presentation and my presentation was, uh, it was a little bit dramatic. And the title of my presentation is, It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To. And what I did is I did a role play as their teenager, telling them that they were just too controlling and too overprotective of me and that they were ruining my life. And uh, so I interacted with these very nervous parents and, uh, and uh, no matter what they said, I just flipped it around. And then uh, at the end of it, uh, I said something that got them all laughing. I said, so you just want me to have a good life. Is that true? Yes. And you're only giving me advice because you want me to be a better person. Is that true? And they said, yes. And I said, so is my reward for doing everything you say that I grow up to be as happy as all of you are? 
And they just started laughing because they were so kind of uptight. And uh, uh, also something that I had been doing uh, for over 10 years is one of my mentors was one of the top pioneers in the study of suicide prevention. He was at UCLA and he did a course called Death and Suicide to upper division undergraduates. So that would be juniors and seniors. And it was one of the most popular courses at UCLA. And he would bring in guest presenters. And in that presentation, I, uh, I would play a, a, a suicidal person complete with a gun. And I would say, talk me out of it. And they could never talk me out of it. And then I would tell the audience of students, this is what you could have said. This is what you could have done that would have made me give you the gun. So when I shared that with uh, my friend from the FBI, he said, uh, why don't you do that with some of our FBI and police negotiators? So then I started doing trainings with them in which uh, the, the final training with them is I played a police officer who was now suicidal after having uh, uh, killed an unarmed teenager a year before. So in that training, I took off my, uh, my sports jacket and my shirt and underneath it all, I had a police uniform on I hadn't shaved and I had glasses that were broken. And I said, I'm, I'm, the, uh, uh, I'm the officer in your department and I've been on medical leave for a year uh, because I killed a teenager who was unarmed. And then I pull a gun out and I say, if you don't talk me out of it, I'm going on permanent leave and then you live with the ghost of someone you couldn't save and this time it's one of your own. And no matter what they did, they couldn't talk me out of it and I pulled the trigger. I mean, it was a fake gun obviously and it wasn't loaded, uh, but then I spoke with them about, this is what you could have said that you didn't say. This is what you could have asked me uh, that might've made me give you the gun. So uh, that training became uh, fairly popular because it was so dramatic. And uh, so that was part of, that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> but what was different about your approach? Well, one of the approaches that I've developed, so uh, because I, I was quite successful with suicidal patients, I've given it a name recently in the last couple of years and I'm calling it surgical empathy. And what is surgical empathy? Uh, when someone is really feeling hopeless and they see no way to end their psychological pain, they don't just attach to death to take the pain away. They form what I call a psychological adhesion. So an adhesion is when you go into surgery and you leave surgery, sometimes after surgery, you have adhesions, your organs stick together and you have to sometimes go in and uh, uh, surgically break adhesions. And when someone's feeling really, really hopeless and worthless and useless and pointless, 
they will grab onto death as a way to take the pain away. And uh, what surgical empathy is, it's a way of going in and causing that person to feel felt. And feeling felt is different than feeling understood. Uh, and, and, and see, when someone is feeling suicidal, their pain feels felt by death as a way to take the pain away. Does that make any sense? Yes. You know, uh, and, and here's sort of an example. Uh, here's this would be professional clinical empathy and surgical empathy. So if you come in and you're really depressed, uh, you know, professional empathy might be, have you been depressed? Yes. Uh, how long have you been depressed? Six months. Have you ever have thoughts of hurting yourself? Yes. Uh, do you have a means of hurting yourself? And again, it, it's not that quick. It's a longer conversation. And, you know, and you're typing all the answers because you have to put it in the record. Uh, so that's 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 good and that's professional and and that's fine but uh, surgical empathy would be you come in and I might and, and instead of saying have you been depressed which can sometimes be a challenging question if I say that to you and, and you're worried if I say yes is he going to lock me up is he going to put me in a hospital you know I'm depressed I don't want to go into a hospital so sometimes asking questions can can put someone on on edge, but surgical empathy might be um, uh, you you've been feeling depressed. Is that true? Yes. And there are times when you feel really depressed. Is that true too? Yeah. And there are times when you don't know how you can go on. Is any of that true? But do you follow what I'm saying? It's a it's a different feeling hmm. than asking them questions that they answer. And how what's the success rate for you? Like as you said, like every time you were able to like because you've been able to like help someone come out of that hole. And how does like one navigate from that? Because this during COVID, like there were lockdowns, a lot of people were going through depression and suicidal thoughts by themselves and this is where you know they don't have someone who's a professional who can actually pull them out so how does one find the tools to build that on their own well there's uh i actually i write i write for a different a number of outlets and i'll send you a link to uh i write for newsweek hmm. which is which is a publication and my most recent article uh talked about how to how to make your way through anything that life throws at you. And so uh, what I would suggest if you're watching this or you're listening and you and you and you're not going to go to a therapist or a professional is uh, I, I'd I'd like you to suggest uh, that you think of someone in your life, living or dead, who cared about you, who believed in you, even when you didn't. And so imagine them. And when you're feeling low, imagine them having a conversation with you uh, that follows these questions. 
So I have something called the, the Dead Mentors Society. I have eight mentors. They've all died. The last one was Larry King. He's pretty well known. He was on CNN. He was all over the world. And I used to go to breakfast with him with a little group for a couple of years. But uh, I might imagine if I'm feeling upset or down on myself, I might in my mind think of uh, Larry speaking to me. And I imagine him saying to me, Mark, what happened? And then I just tell him what happened. And then the second question I imagine him asking me is, uh, uh, after he says, tell me about that, you know, so don't just, it's not just singular answers. So imagine that person in your mind's eye saying, what did you think when it happened? Well, I thought, you know, I was on this uh, lovely young woman's podcast and I was all over the place and I didn't know if I was doing a good job, Larry, and you're such a professional and I'm such a loser, you know. Uh, uh, well, uh, so what did you think? Well, I thought maybe I shouldn't be a guest on podcasts. Uh, and then he might say, what did you feel, Mark? Um, I felt embarrassed. I felt like I was wasting people's time. I felt like I was supposed to be professional and I didn't sound very professional. Uh, and then the next question you might say is, uh, well, what does it make you want to do? Uh, I don't think I'm going to do any more podcasts after my one with uh, Niha. I was such, I was such a disaster, Larry. <laughs> So he's talking, you follow me, he's talking me through it. Uh, and, uh, and then he might say, uh, and then he's, you know, he's saying, Mark, Mark, get a hold of yourself. It's going to be okay. Um, what did the host think of you? Uh, I think she liked the interview, Larry. Uh, and then, and then he might say, what would be a better thing to do? And in my mind, I'd be thinking, whenever I'm feeling upset, Imagining having a conversation with someone who cares about me or loves me, talking me down. So in that article, uh, uh, which I'll send you a link to, you can come up with these questions. Uh, uh, let me see if I remember them. What just happened? What'd you think? What'd you feel? What did it make you want to do? Uh, what would happen if you did that? What would be a better thing to do? And why that? And so one of the things that I that I suggest in the article is, uh, so if you're listening in or watching this, think of five situations that tend to trigger you, that tend to get you upset. You know, you you can pick more, but I'm just suggesting five situations. Well, if I if I get criticized at work, uh, if my parents uh, you know, yell at me, or uh, if I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they break up with me. But think of, of five situations that, that trigger you. And the suggestion in the article is to do a selfie following those prompts. So in other words, you're doing a selfie and, a mat and, you're, and you're asking yourself those questions. And the idea is you collect a library of, of, of selfies of you talking yourself down from being agitated. Do you follow me? And, and so you, you can collect yeah. a library because when you're triggered, you may not listen to anyone else. But 
you might pick up your phone and there you are uh, seeing yourself answering all those questions and that might help calm you down. Does that make sense to you? That makes sense, but I just want to understand what's the reasoning behind it. So you said like, you know, is it because you inertly want someone to listen to you and then when you like you know have this person who's like your imaginary mentor and he's listening to you he or she's listening to you asking those questions so in that way you just feel heard is that what is lacking in when someone is going through something like this yeah i'll do a little bit of neurochemistry when we are stressed out our cortisol uh, goes up and cortisol is a uh, you know an internal uh, uh, hormone that our adrenal glands secrete. And when our cortisol goes very high, it triggers something in our brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala is sort of an uh, emotional uh, sentry. It's like an emotional guard. And when it gets triggered and overwhelmed, it, it redirects the blood flow away from your thinking brain to your lower brain. That's called an amygdala hijack. So high cortisol leads to your amygdala getting really activated. The amygdala sends a signal to your, to your brain, uh, uh, send more blood to your survival mechanism. And your survival mechanism is fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, what a lot of people don't know, and what I've shared with you, many people know, but what a lot of people don't know is that oxytocin, which is the hormone connected to emotional bonding, which is very high in young mothers, because a lot of times you need to develop patience with your child who won't stop crying, with your child who won't sleep through the night, but having high oxytocin, a high emotional connection, calms you down. You know, so that you don't yell at your child when they don't, they don't, you know, you don't yell at your baby to shut up. And so the mechanism of those steps and imagining someone who cares about you talking you through it, it increases oxytocin. So if I go through those steps in my mind with Larry King, one of my other mentors, uh, what happens is I go from feeling maybe frustrated with how I was as a guest on your podcast, Neha, uh, to mm -hmm. suddenly I'm thinking I'm missing Larry King. And I'm, I'm thinking, boy, was I lucky to be able to have breakfast with him every day. And, uh, uh, and boy, was I lucky to have him think good things about me. So the crossover to feeling those feelings increases the oxytocin in me. And when the oxytocin goes up, cortisol goes down, your amygdala settles down, and then the blood flow can go back to your upper brain so you can start to think again. What's the relationship between stress and then the opposite when people are like not doing anything? Like, you know, when you exercise, you go out, you talk to your friends, you are less depressed. So that's like, you know, you there's physical activity. So how is that connected to high stress levels? Because it seems like just the opposite. Uh, well, no, I think activity and exercise and especially meditation and yoga, uh, those are all 
very helpful. And they and when you do those, they lower cortisol. Uh, and, and I think they're great practices if they can work for you. What I'm trying to introduce to the world is that there's something in addition to that about an emotional connection. Because you can say to someone who's depressed, why don't you exercise? Yeah, I know I should, but they can't push themselves to do it because they're depressed. Well, why don't you change your diet? Why don't you do these things? But a lot of times they just can't do it and then you get frustrated with them. But if you can show this empathy the way I'm describing it and they feel felt, they just start to cry, but they cry with relief. I'll share a story with you that some people find interesting. So early on in my career, a, uh, I had another mentor who was one of the pioneers in suicide prevention. He was at UCLA and he was, he was a supervisor, then he became a mentor, and he would uh, refer me suicidal patients. So he would go up into the hospital and some of the patients needed to be discharged, but to be discharged, they needed to see someone who was willing to see them outside the hospital. And so Dr. Schneidman would go up to a consultation and then put them on the phone with me and then I'd say, yes, I'll see this person. And so they were able to discharge the person because I was willing to see them. And sometimes the doctors in the hospital were not that willing to see them because they were still suicidal. They, they weren't uh, immediately suicidal, but you know, I was the person that they would send them to. And there was one woman I saw which changed a lot of my thinking or this empathy, and she had made three suicide attempts before I saw her. She'd been in the hospital um, uh, several times per year before I saw her. And I was seeing her, and I didn't think I was helping her at all. When I was with her, if you're me, and this is Nancy, that's not her name, but, and this is Nancy, she'd go, she'd look like that. Uh, and one day I, uh, I saw her on a Monday and that weekend I was working at a, a state psychiatric hospital. Uh, so sometimes you don't sleep that much when you're, it, it's called moonlighting when you cover for other doctors. So on a Monday there was Nancy and, and, and you're me and she's like this. And when I was with her, suddenly the color in the room turned to black and white. And I'm looking out at the room and it's not, I don't see the color anymore. I just see it's black and white. And I started to get cold. And I thought I was having a seizure or a stroke. So she's like this and I'm doing a neurologic exam on myself. I'm going like this, I'm going like this, seeing if I have double vision, I'm tapping my elbows and whatnot. And then I had this idea that I didn't have a stroke or a seizure, but that I was looking out at the world, feeling her feelings. So what the world felt like to her was black and white and cold. Uh, it, it may be that she was in the dark night of the soul. So because I, because I was sleep deprived, 
one of the things that I, uh, I, I did is I blurted out something that normally I wouldn't say. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to to get out of all the pain. And I thought to myself, I'm in trouble. I just gave her permission to kill herself. And that was the first time she looked at me. And I thought she was going to say, thank you. I'm overdue. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, I'm in trouble. And I said, what are you thinking? And she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of my pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled. And I said, and then I looked in her eyes and I held on to them like I'm holding on to yours. And I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to throw treatments at you that, uh, uh, that have been tried before unless you ask me. You know, if you say maybe we should try such and such, we can give it a try. Would that be okay? And she looked at me and, and she was very interested. Yeah, that'd be okay. And then I and then I grabbed under her eyes the way she was grabbing onto mine. And I said, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are. And I'm going to keep you company because I don't want you to be alone anymore. Would that be okay? And then she started to cry. So could you follow that at all? Hmm. So it's just hard being someone being able to feel exactly how she felt. Right, without judgment. And not only that, uh, what mattered most to me was that she be out of her pain and if there was no other way to do it, than to kill herself, I was okay with it, and and uh, and the, and I think my being okay with it communicated to her that I cared more about her pain that wouldn't go away than whether she stayed alive. And no one had ever said that or felt that. So, so can you follow that? It, it, yeah. It, it, so what goes through your head when you're having these conversations? Like, I know for this specific moment, you were like completely exhausted and you were in that frame of mind where you just blurted it out. Well, but I'll tell you, what, what, yeah. what I learned to do is when I, and you can do this if you're watching or listening, and you can do your own version. What I used to do with uh, suicidal patients is I would listen for hurt, psychological, emotional hurt, I would listen for fear that they couldn't take it anymore. I would listen for anger because many of them were just angry because everybody's trying to tell me to do this and I need to do this and I, you know, and it's not making me feel any better and I'm just a burden to everyone. And then I would listen for how much time before they were going to do something destructive. Hurt, fear, anger, destruction. And when I listened for that, it was always there. 
And when they picked up that I was listening for that, they felt a connection. They felt comforted. They didn't feel so alone anymore. And that feeling caused many of them to feel relief. And with the relief, they started crying. So I'm going to give something to you and your audiences that, uh, that may be helpful. If you're worried about one of your children, or you're worried about a, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or one of your siblings, uh, there's something that I call the four prompts. And uh, this is how the conversation goes. You reach out to them. And if you're a parent reaching out to a teen, you can say, you know, our, uh, we parents are very worried about our kids because of the pandemic and because of everything, because school is closed, it's open. And, you know, uh, uh, can I run some things by you? And hopefully that person will say yes. Or you can say that to a, a spouse and say, you know, I've been worried about you. Can I run some things by you? And so hopefully they'll say yes. And then you, the first prompt is, uh, at its worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life or yourself? And they're going to say, what? Yeah. When it's really bad, at its worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life or yourself? And they might say, pretty awful. And then surgical empathy would be, pretty awful or very awful? Okay, okay, very awful. And then you have them talk it out. The second prompt is, when you're feeling that way, how alone do you feel? Uh, pretty alone. Pretty alone or all alone? O okay, all alone. And then you get them to talk about that. The third prompt is, Take me to the last time you felt that. And they're going to look at you and go, what? Yeah, take me to the last time you felt that. If it's your teenager, you, you might say, was it 2.30 in the morning a couple nights ago? You were, we heard you walking around in your room. We didn't know what was going on. And what happens is when someone shares with you uh, uh, something so clearly that you can see it, they re-feel it. So when uh, that teenager says, yes, I couldn't get to sleep. It was 2.30. Well, what happened next? I was just walking around my room and I was so frustrated because I had a test the next day. That sounds awful. What happened next? I, 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 I didn't, I, I felt like kicking the wall. I felt like punching the wall and, oh, what'd you do next? I just couldn't get back to sleep. I, I didn't know what to do. And then I started looking for cough medicine. Maybe, maybe I could find some and it would knock me out and I couldn't find that. And wow, what'd you do next? Well, the sun rose. And then the fourth thing you say is, I have a favor to ask you. The next time you are feeling that way, or you're even close to it, I want you to do whatever it takes to get your dad or your mom or my undivided attention. Because I have tons of things, or your mom or dad have tons of things going on, and uh, 
and it's tough to get our undivided attention, but there's nothing more important to us than helping you feel less alone when you're feeling that awful. So would you do that? So do you follow me? So those are some yep. steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, uh, they're not quick questions. What you're wanting to do is to get them to share what's going on for them. Because frequently what happens, I don't know what it's like in uh, uh, in India or what it's like in uh, uh, the UAE or Dubai, but in America, a lot of parents and teenagers have these uh, frustrating conversations. Why aren't you eating? I'm not hungry. Well, you need to eat something. I'm not hungry. Or why are you eating so much? Or, um, you know, why are you spending so much time in your room? You know, why don't you go and exercise? And so what happens is, what's happening is those kids are not just frustrating their parents, they're scaring them. And it's out of the fear uh, not just the frustration that the parents are, are are snapping at them. And then what happens is those kids feel, you know, uh, it's not, that's not helping them. And it's interesting. I'm part of a documentary that I'm very excited about. A friend of mine named Jason Reed, he had a 14-year-old son who died by suicide four years ago. And Jason's never been depressed. Jason's an entrepreneur. He's a musician. He's uh, started companies, uh, but he's he's just he's a great guy. But he's never been depressed. And what he realized is that his son couldn't open up to him because his son was really depressed. And Jason would come up with answers. Well, you know, uh, why don't you take uh, music lessons? Why don't you do such and such? And so what happens is his son didn't open up. And then one, uh, and then one day when Jason was away with his wife on vacation, thinking what a great life we have, he got a text message from his 14-year-old son, who said, uh, uh, "Don't blame yourself. I'm sorry. Goodbye." And Jason screamed, called home, and his mother-in-law was there, and he said, "Go find Ryan." And his mother-in-law ran around the house and Ryan had hung himself up in the attic. So Jason's been on a mission trying to figure out what he missed. Mm-hmm. And he's created a, he created a documentary, a first documentary with one of Ryan's suicide notes called Tell, uh, Tell My Story. That was one of his notes. Mm-hmm. And it's a great documentary. It's on Amazon Prime. It's heart-wrenching. And Jason went up and down the West Coast of America to find out. Uh, He spoke to parents, he spoke to teenagers, he spoke to experts. I was in the last 10 minutes of the movie. And what he discovered is that what, what was the most powerful part of that movie was when the teenagers talked about uh, when they were feeling really low and suicidal. So the teenagers in the movie were not currently suicidal, but they talked about when they felt that bad. So he recently created another movie called What I Wish My Parents Knew. And he interviewed 10 teenagers who are doing pretty well, but he asked them about their lowest point. 
And these teenagers are so appealing and so honest and so open that when parents see the film, and it's only going to be distributed in high schools and junior highs to parents and maybe teens, because uh, my worry is if it goes on Netflix or YouTube, cyber bullies will come in and push these kids over the edge. Yeah, why don't you kill yourself? Yeah, you're such a loser. Mm. So, so I'm very protective of it. But when parents see it, um, you can't help but see one of your children as one of these teenagers. And then you go home and you start to cry. And your teenager says, mom, what's the matter? Dad, what's the matter? And what these parents do is they look at their teenager realizing that underneath their teenager saying, leave me alone, get off my back, is maybe what some of these teenagers are feeling. And what happens is it changes the conversation. You want a teenager sees that you're crying because you love them, not because you're angry at them. It changes things. So I've been looking for something like this for 25 years. And I'm excited. Excited is a bad word, but it, it, I think it has the chance to cause parents and teenagers to look at each other and interact differently. You spoke a little bit about cyberbullying, and you said you don't want this to come out on Netflix because you know those children who are, are spoken so candidly can be in a position where they would be cyberbullied. But that is a harsh reality of not just teenagers, but a lot of people. There's a lot of vitriol that's thrown around on the internet. And because it's online, uh, people don't f filter it out. There's no shield, and then they just come out full guns blazing. How does one work with that and deal with depression and like, you know, suicidal thoughts when the it's, it gets so vicious? Um, well, you know, people, young people all the way down to two and three years of age are addicted to the internet. You know, parents, parents put their three-year-olds here, watch the i uh, your iPad while we have dinner. And 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 what happens is, and parents are overworked. Um, this is you know, I'm very sympathetic to parents. They want to have a break, and boy, you 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 put the iPad in front of your kid, they're addicted to it. And so I think there's a danger to that. And there's all kinds of efforts. But recently, what I've been even hearing from the news, and is News is about ratings, at least in America. And what gets ratings is vitriol. People don't watch people being nice. And so I think what happens is, is parents and kids, there needs to be more conversations, but it's human nature to be drawn to, uh, uh, to, to vitriol. Hmm. You know, why, why do people like horror movies? Why do people like violent movies? You know, because they, they kind of live through them vicariously. So I, I think it is a danger. So, but then how does one navigate through that? Well, if you're, I think if you're a loving, uh, if you're a loving parent 
or a loving sibling or a loving spouse, you, you look for changes in the other person's behavior. So you look for signals that uh, they're just not the same. They're, uh, they're withdrawn, they're not socializing, uh, they're kind of negative. Uh, and then what you really wanna do is, is try to open them up. And you might start using the four prompts because uh, you want them to open up. Um, there's something else that's part, uh, another, uh, another expression of surgical empathy. It's called the five realies. Uh, a friend of mine ran the, uh, the US Marines in the 1990s. Uh, and he's the one who taught me about this because uh, we were involved in a transition program for returning Marines. And one of the things he would do with returning Marines, uh, and he had one, uh, uh, this was a general, General Marty Steele, he'd have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him. And I, and I'd said, I said to him, uh, General Steele, what'd you talk to these soldiers about? And he said, uh, I'd ask them, how are you doing, Marine? That's how they speak to each other. Hmm. And they'd say, well, you know, it's different to be in a war zone than to be coming into a civilian zone. And then, and then uh, General Steele would say, I understand that, but what's really going on? Well, you know, I'm getting into arguments at home and, you know, because we're just getting on each other's nerves. And he'd say, I understand you're getting on each other's nerves, but what's really going on? And he said, when you get to the fifth wheelie, people open up. And he said, some of those Marines would open up to him and say, I saw, I, I saw and did horrible things, sir. <laughs> and when I close my eyes, I see them more vividly, so I don't close my eyes much. And he would say, if you're a Marine and you've been in war, we've all seen and done horrible things. You know, you shoot civilians, you don't know they're civilians. And, uh, and so he would give them an order to put that aside because they, de they deserve to have a life. And so, uh, and it's interesting, you can say to someone in your, uh, that you're worried about, you know, so how are you doing? And they say, how are you really doing? And then they say something and you say, and if you feel that there's something else going on and you care about them, yeah, I understand that, but what's really going on? And they may get angry at you and let them get it. You could say, I know you're angry at me, uh, but something's going on. What's really going on? And if you're fortunate, you might be able to get through and they'll look at you and they might say, uh, I think I'm crazy. <laughs> or I think, uh, I think I'm not ever going to be happy. And the point is, now you might say that's going to scare people. So you don't want to open someone up and then say it's all going to be okay because they're going to feel, why did you open me up? Hmm. But if you can allow them to open up, it, it, it's like surgical empathy. It's draining what's really on their mind. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then what you want to do is help them to open up even further. How long have you felt that you might be crazy? Well, you know, I thought I was kind of different as a, as a teenager, but sometimes I don't think it's different. I think maybe I'm crazy. Well, what do you mean? Well, I, I just look at things and 
they don't make sense to me and I imagine things and but but the more you get them to open up the more they'll feel relief did you follow what I'm saying and then yep. and then when they get that it gets very calming especially if you uh if when they open up they're they're looking at you as if you're judging them you know so you don't think I'm crazy no no I think I think everybody feels what you feel sometimes. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, we just don't talk about it. But it's a very lonely place. Scary place, right? Yeah. yeah. So so are you following how I'm going with this? Yes. Yeah. But then, okay, you've taken them off the ledge. What next? Right. Well, I think... Again, if you've taken them off the ledge with oxytocin, right? Because mm -hmm. you're showing this this empathy and caring, um, they're more open to then <clears throat> maybe having a conversation and maybe even doing something. Um, uh, I'll share an interesting anecdote. I wrote this uh, also for Newsweek, uh, and. It's a it's a fantasy conversation, uh, and this is a very, this is politi a politically charged problem in America. Uh, but you know, there's a big division between people who are pro science and people who are anti science. Uh, and so, this is a fantasy conversation about how do you get them to how do you get them to connect with each other. So in the conversation, the pro-science person who believes in things like vaccines says to the anti-science person, uh, how come you don't believe in science? How come you don't believe in uh, vaccines? And the person might say, well, I think you scientists, you know, you think uh, uh, you have all the answers, but a lot of times, you know, uh, you know I, I don't think you're right. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to go along with something just because you think you're right. And then if you say, well, I can understand you feel that way, but what's really going on? Well, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's room for two points of view, you know, and you can see it one way and I can see it another way. And, and that's, there should be room for both of us. And then they're getting agitated. Well, I see that you're getting upset. What's really going on? And then in this fantasy conversation, the anti-science person says, People like you have been talking down to me my whole life. You've been looking at me like I'm stupid, I'm ignorant, and I'm not worth your time. And people like you have been doing this my whole life. So in the fantasy conversation, the pro-science person says, you're absolutely right. I've been talking down to people like you my whole life because I'm scared. But that doesn't give me the right to talk down to you. And you're right. I, I come off as arrogant, condescending, and I'm wrong. And you deserve respect. And I'm sorry. So in this fantasy conversation, the anti-science person says, no one like you has ever apologized to me in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> and the pro-science person says, well, you deserve that apology. 
because I've been doing it my whole life and people like me have been doing it and we don't talk to you respectfully and we look down at you and it's because we're scared but that that's not that that's wrong and then the anti-science person says again no one like you has ever apologized to me <laughs> and, and so what ha if you can follow it they calm down and the pro-science person lets go of science and vaccine and says uh no, you just pointed out something to me that I apologize. And so they calm down and the anti-science person says, you know, I don't think you're trying to hurt me. Why don't you tell me about the science stuff? So do you follow what I'm saying? It, yeah. it, <clears throat> there is great power in an unsolicited apology because there are many people in this world that have never been apologized to. Do you think that's going to be the case soon enough? Because right now there's a lot of divide. Like I know in the U.S. itself, there's this pro-choice and then there's this COVID thing, political leanings left and right. And because of that, the world is getting even more divided. This is just something that like, you know, the world watches the U.S. So we see this happening on a day to day basis and it kind of is reflected globally. And people do like, you know, go into their camps and then they go like everything that we say is correct and everything that anyone else is saying is false and we should like you know fight for what we believe in and it's becoming even more divided there's small fissures and that do you see an uh, end in sight for this well i i think it's going to get worse before it gets better but one of the things that i would like to promote but you know i'm just a single little voice uh i think extremists have more in common with each other than either of them have with people in the middle. And what I think they have in common is there's probably some trauma that happened to them that drove them to be an extremist. You know, uh, uh, American teens who go over and join ISIS, they're often traumatized by being bullied, uh, having no sex life, uh, having no girlfriends, having, you know, and, and, and so they're traumatized by that, so they grab onto an extreme position. Uh, on the other hand, people who are extremely uh, on the liberal side, uh, you know, they've been traumatized in other ways. So what I would like to happen, but I don't see it happening, is bringing together extremists who, who are willing to not just yell at each other, but have someone pull out of each of them uh, what happened to you that caused you to believe what you believe? And so if you can actually believe that what you believe and what you're yelling about is the result of something that happened to you, because neither of you was born extremists. Neither of you were, was, was born hateful. So what happened to each of you to take your extreme positions? And I think if you pulled that out of them uh, and you got them to talk about their backgrounds and their stories, uh, I think what would happen is there might be a possibility for them to actually empathize with each other and think, geez, I was bullied too, but I went in the opposite direction. So do you follow what I'm saying? If, if you yeah. believe with me, uh, and I believe that 
with the very, very rare exception, nobody is born evil. I mean, the rare, rare exception, you know, maybe there's some genetic something or other, but that's very, very rare. But nobody is born evil. Nobody is born extremist. And if, and if you can then uh, legitimize not what they believe in now as an extremist, but that they were driven to believe in it by all kinds of things, and you could have someone facilitate those conversations. You know, like something, if I was the facilitator, I would ask each of them, talk about some time in your childhood when you felt trapped and powerless. You know, and describe it. What happened? Uh, and and then people start to open up about that. And then what did that make you think uh, about the world? You can go through all those steps we talked about er earlier. What did it make you think when that happened? Well, I thought the world was a bad place. What did it make you feel? It made me feel that I either had to run away or hide from it or I'd become a bad person. I, you know, I'd make sure if someone bullied me, I'd make sure I bullied other people. And, and Do you so, think there is hope for someone like a Jeffrey Dahmer or like a Hitler, and you were to find them in the right moment in time? Would you be able to convince them and change their mind? So that's there. As I say, you know, uh, life. So it's is not just what. It's 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 unpacking so much trauma that they've gone to to the point where they've become such an extreme case, where if you don't fix or you don't intervene quickly, it, things can get very dangerous. Absolutely, yeah, no, no, and uh, and again, it may be that Jeffrey Dahmer or Hitler were born evil. I don't know, but uh, one of the things that triggers violence is uh, there's a term I I, I heard fulminating grievance so fulminating means it's over it, it, it's over the top so fulminating grievance plus some inciting incident some trigger so uh i i'll just use this as an example and i'm not doing this to be pro trump or anti-trump but there was a part of him that felt that uh, he doesn't care what the vote was, he deserved to be a president. He didn't care whether he's elected or not, he deserved to be pr uh, president, and it was being taken away from him. And so that grievance was so big that even when he was uh, uh, going around supporting candidates, he couldn't help but talk about the stolen election because he had this fulminating grievance. But the inciting incident was on January 6th, it was going to be, it was going to be decided that uh, President Biden was the president. So there was that incident on that day, if it gets approved, uh, it doesn't matter what he thinks, uh, someone else is gonna be the president. So I'm just using that as an example that, uh, that with people who are driven to violence, there's often this grievance against something. You've mm -hmm. done me wrong. This is unjust. And it builds and it builds and it builds. And then there's a trigger. 
So I'm guessing that some of the we have a lot of mass shootings and school mm -hmm. shootings that, you know, uh, they were they were made fun of. They were they were uh, they were bullied. Uh, 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 people humiliated them and it built up and it built up and it built up. And then there was probably one incident. Or maybe the incident was, uh, you know, I'm going to go and do my shooting when everybody's having a great time. Like there was a huge mass shooting in Las Vegas some years ago. I, I forget how many people got shot from a hotel, but it was a huge number. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, whoever that shooter was, there was this grievance against the world, but the inciting incident is, oh, there's going to be lots of people together having fun and enjoying themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get even with them. And so, uh, uh, but I do believe, uh, you know, the key is to try to catch it early and um, am I hopeful? I have mixed feelings because I, I think there would be a way to prevent it. But again, the focus, especially the focus on what makes money is to fan the flames of hatred. Hmm. Uh, hatred uh, is, is much more newsworthy you know, than a cake sale. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back a bit about depression. So you said like identifying signs, seeing a difference in people's behavior, and then you can like, you know, help someone you love and you care about. But then there are public figures like Anthony Bourdain, who's everybody knew he had friends and then they were like, we didn't see the signs and they knew how to like have their mask on where they're in front of people and people just think that, you know, they're just living the best life. How does one identify someone who's very good at having that face on when they are in public? Well, it's interesting you bring this up because uh, I, I may be doing a book with someone uh, about bipolar two. So bipolar one and, and bipolar two, uh, bipolar one is when you're manic, you're delusional, hmm. you know, so you're psychotic and you're not very productive if you're bipolar one, because when you're manic, you're really not all that productive. And then when you get depressed, you get depressed, but it's mainly chemical. And I'm bringing this up because bipolar two people are much more, not much more, but they're more suicidal than bipolar one people when they're depressed. And going back to Anthony Bourdain, uh, who is probably bipolar two, is that it may be that when they're uh, uh, what we call hypomanic, meaning they're not psychotic, but they're energetic, they're filled with life, they're doing amazing things and the world's eyes are on them. Uh, and, the, and, and, and it's, and there's a sense of being grandiose and, but you're so productive. The world loves you. What happens is if you're bipolar two and you go to the other side, you're not just depressed, you're humiliated. And humiliation is, if you can think that when someone is bipolar two and they're uh, hypomanic and grandiose, oh, you know, I, I'm so amazing. 
when it flips the other side, which is a chemical thing, bipolar two, it's a chemical thing, then uh, they can reach a point where they feel humiliated. They feel foolish. They feel, what was I thinking? Um, again, it's probably improper to diagnose people like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, but there's a, there's a good chance that, you know, uh, they, they were bipolar too. Uh, and, and many of the visionaries in the entrepreneur field, I would say more than close to 60% of visionary entrepreneurs are bipolar too, because, because you have all this confidence, uh, you see something really clearly and you chase after it. And uh, if you're, again, not delusional, you often see something that nobody else can see. Elon Musk said, gee, we got batteries. This is a true story. We got batteries and laptops, but we could put batteries in a car and eventually we'll make the batteries small enough so you know, the car can run for a long time. And Steve Jobs saw the same thing about personal computers and especially using the mouse and the graphical user interface, which he stole from Xerox Park. So there's just there's an element of like you know uh, extreme on both sides that one person and then when one side is like completely uh, depressed that's that that like you know that ugly head rearing out but then the other side is extreme productivity extreme confidence yeah and, and again when you're the extreme confidence there is a grandiosity and so when you're in the low point where you feel like uh, uh, so one of the things that visionaries are able to do is they can take, they can pull dots out of the universe and connect them into the future. We'll take this dot, we'll take this dot, we'll take this dot, Tesla. Hmm. Oh, we'll take this dot, we'll take this, we'll take this Macintosh computer. And when they're at a low point, what they're feeling is the dots aren't connecting they're never going to connect again. Uh, uh, I think I've been a, a fool. I think when Steve Jobs uh, challenged the Apple board and said, uh, it's going to be John Scully who they brought in because Steve Jobs made everyone nervous because mm -hmm. he was probably hypomanic. Uh, and Steve Jobs, when he sent to the board, it's going to be John Scully or me. Uh, the board picked John Scully, who, because he wasn't creative, nearly destroyed Apple. Because Apple needed this creative engine that, that Steve Jobs was. So does that make sense? I mean, if, 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 if things really make sense to you, and boy, I'm so creative, and then the world reinforces that, and then you hit that low point and, uh, you know, my life is over. Hmm. I'm foolish. And so th there's someone I may be working with uh, who is pretty high profile, but what he's realized is he's bipolar too. And, uh, and we're hoping to do something uh, because uh, hypomanic people don't listen to anything. Hypomanic people are not going to read a book uh, about the hypomanic side, but surviving the downside of bipolar 2, they might read.
Although I have a question then. So like a lot of people will be like, oh, you know, if an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs is bipolar and that's what makes them like, you know, be so creative, maybe it's a feature, not a bug. Say that again. So it's like if someone is looking, uh, looks up to someone like an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs and they see that their creativity has come from this mental issue that they have where they're bipolar and they're like okay maybe that's a good thing even though like you know the the highs are so high and the lows are so low but then when their highs are so high they are achieving like success and uh connecting dots no one else could so is it worth having that like so maybe it's like maybe i could have this bipolar disorder and be so productive that it's fine if i have the lows because then i can just maybe have uh, depression like you know i can I, I can take medication for it and then like you know live that life what would you say to a person like that um well one of the reasons we might do something this partner of mine and me is uh the downside is so horrible so it, like you can say well geez if i had the chance to be that productive you know when i get that low you know i'll just take medication and yes medication can sometimes help the problem is the medication that helps uh, is a mood stabilizer and that can take away the highs that's uh, that's always been the challenge with people that are bipolar is they love the mania or the hypomania uh uh, and, you know, it, and it may be that they'll find meds that, uh, and there's a lot of advertising in America for meds for bipolar depression. Uh, I haven't drilled down into them to see, well, what do they do with the mania? Do they take mm -hmm. away your hypomania? So it's, I don't know if you, look, uh, I don't know if you've ever had physical or mental pain where it's just so unbearable. Uh, like, like I've had kidney stones. Kidney stones are very painful, and uh, and I, and I can remember going into the emergency room, and 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 I was, I don't think I was screaming, but I might have been. Yeah, I said, you know, give me morphine or just kill me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it was just so unbearable. Hmm you've uh, spoken uh, you've had a tedx talk where you've spoken about what made you smile today and mm -hmm. how that completely changed your interactions with people do you want to just uh, untangle that a bit and explain what is how is that question so important in today's day and age well i think it's really important but <clears throat> but because people are so on edge you don't want to insult people although um uh uh, my TEDx, What Made You Smile Today, uh, it, it, it started out because a friend of mine had a daughter who was a drug addict. And, uh, and he didn't like talking to her because she was always trying to get money out of him for something. But he felt, you know, I, I still have to have contact with her, you know. And so he would text her every day at 5 p.m., 5 p.m. Hey, honey, it's dad. What made you smile today? And at first she thought, oh, I'll get money from you. Mm. And then he just did it every day. And then, you know, some weeks later he did it. And she said, what made me smile today is that you texted me. And so she stopped being manipulative and he started 
he started crying because underneath it all, he loved her. He just didn't like that she was a liar. And uh, and then we and then we thought to expand it, and we have a hashtag WMYST Instagram site, you know, which maybe someday will grow. But the idea is, uh, and here and here was the movement we wanted to start, and you can do this when you go to the airport, when you're waiting in line, uh, when you someone is serving you. The, the way what made you smile today works is uh, if there's not a line behind you uh, and someone serves you and they have a name tag on, you look at their name tag and someone says to you, uh, 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 hello, Neha, thank you for serving me. My name is Mark. I have a question for you. And then they might say, oh, no, you're not in any trouble. <laughs> and then if I were to say, what made you smile today? You'll pause for a second, you look up at the ceiling, and then you'll come down and you'll smile and you'll say, my dog, my puppy, my, uh, uh, my child, my friend, it's a sunny day. And what happens is you've taken someone who feels like they're not a person. They feel like the, the world treats them like they're an appliance. Mm. You know, and, and when you call them by name and you say, what made you smile today? They remember what it is. And when they look at you, they're grateful. I think in the TED Talk, I talked about a young man in India who, you know, would email me and I would respond. And, and, uh, uh, and then I said to him, Arul, what made you smile today? I typed it out. And he types back. He says, nobody as important as you has ever typed my name. <laughs> and so every day I go to the computer and I touch where you, where you typed my name. That changed his life. So what made you smile today? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Today's been a long day. I know. I know. Take a deep breath. What made you smile today? Come on. Come on. I'm just going back home. <laughs> yeah, going back home. Good. And what about you? What made you smile today? Well, meeting you, having this conversation. Sorry that you're feeling so tired. And it's a long day. And... Mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad we had the chance to talk. And uh, and so do I have to wake up Larry King to tell him that I, I was on this podcast and it was a real mess? No, not at all. <laughs> oh, because when I do that, he has a he has a strong voice uh, from Brooklyn, New York. Mark, mm -hmm. what'd you wake me for? <laughs> Mark, I'm not even cold. Why don't you call up one of your other dead mentors? Larry, Larry, <laughs> I did it again. I messed up a podcast. Well, what do the hosts think? I think she liked it. Well, can you let me go back and rest in peace? Leave me alone, Mark. <laughs> what happens is in my mind, we're having this lovely conversation. Hmm. And then I think, of, boy, I miss him. And then just even saying that to you, I could feel it in my eyes. I miss him. Hmm. Hmm. And it touches me. Can you feel the power of that? Yeah. We need more people like that. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. So, 
I I I want to give you a break. You can uh, you, you can you. We went for a while on this thing. Uh, yeah. So I want to. I, I you know you look you look exhausted. <laughs> I just want to want to ask you about what you're working on. Where can people find you? So then they make sure, like you know, because you you said you're working on a new project. And it's about bipolar disorder with someone. So it's just like, what else? Where else can they find whatever you're working on, your books? Okay, so I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call. Uh, I, I'm in my mid 70s. I'm going to be 75, uh, which I look. People say I look pretty young for that. You um, do definitely. <laughs> uh, and uh, and my wake up call is in the top 0.5 percent of podcasts globally. And I do zero social media because I don't have a team. Hmm. And I get about 25 requests to be on the podcast every week. And so I select people uh, who can support the podcast on their end because I don't have a team. Hmm. And or, or they have me on their podcast, like you're having me on, on, on yours. Uh, and every day when I wake up, I... I want to discover something new and having the podcasts, I always discover something new. So, so that seems to keep going. We're posting four episodes a week now. So we're up to about 410 episodes and, and, but I just have too many recorded episodes. I have 35 recorded episodes. So we, we just got to, we get, we got to catch up, but I I'm recording a lot of episodes. So there's my wake up call. I have a website, my uh, markgoulston.com. My uh, my LinkedIn profile, uh, I'm listed as one of the world's leading healthy conflict coaches. So uh, I used to, you know, with the with the negotiation training and all that, I I used to resolve conflicts, but what I realized is when I would resolve a conflict between two people. We might resolve the conflict, but the bully would still be a bully, and the person who was being bullied would still be someone who's bullied. So to me, at my age, that's too exhausting. So I'll work with people who are heads of companies because a lot of heads of companies do not know how to handle conflict. They either get angry or they avoid it, and it makes the company unsafe. So that uh, so that's how I interact with the uh, business world. Is uh, if you have a company and you don't handle conflict well, and it could be conflict with your board, it could be with your executive team, customers, you know, then I can help with that. And uh, we have this documentary, uh, uh, "What I Wish My Parents Knew." Uh, I'm. Part of a documentary also with a fellow named Kevin Hines who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and lived, and that's called Stay Alive, uh, and that's, uh, uh, that's on Amazon Prime. So those are, uh, uh, all those things keep me busy. <laughs> oh, here's some, oh, here's, here's one last thing, but uh, uh, I've started, I've co-founded a movement uh, and it's called uh, the Rising Tide Challenge. And years ago, there was something called the Ice Bucket Challenge. Uh, and uh, my partners and I uh, believe that 99% of the world wants the same future. 
but they don't have a voice. So one of our co-founders, he, he's going around the world and he's getting people, he has conversations with people. He's a journalist, he's a writer. And so he's having conversations with people and he's having them do selfies where, uh, where on a selfie, like a TikTok size thing, they say, my, uh, my hopeful future, and then fill in the blank. My hopeful mm -hmm. future has this. My hopeful future looks like this. And so we're going to collect them and put them all on TikTok and start a movement where the 99% of the world gets to say, my hopeful future looks like this. And then when we find out if that the 99% of the world wants a certain future, we'll then uh, find a way to give it to them. And we call it the rising tide challenge because the full phrase is the rising tide that lifts all hopes. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm.